Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. The words of Torah this morning are from Parshat Va'era, and we are in the second triennial reading of every Parsha, which means we're reading the second uh, third of every Torah portion, which this is the one of the harder years to figure out where we are because you're smack in the middle. So as we've seen, there's different traditions around where those divisions into thirds happens. Um, we tend to think of a an annual reading as the norm, and because our people don't want to sit that long, we break it into thirds, into a triennial reading. But traditionally earlier, Torah was read on a triennial cycle. So it's a very old idea that got reconstructed because when you read on a triennial cycle before, it meant it took you three years to read the whole Torah. But now because an annual reading is the norm in so many places, we want to be with the rest of the Jewish world reading the same portion. But we want to take three years to do it, so... That's why we break each parsha into thirds. Otherwise, if we were on a three-year cycle and another shul is on an annual cycle, you're studying different Torah portions, right? And the idea is not to do that to the Jewish people, to try to keep us unified and linked and related to one another by being always in the same Torah portion. So so much so that this Shabbat is called Shabbat Va'era, right? Shabbat is the Shabbat that we're in is named for the parsha. So you know it, our calendars would all change, right? So it's a it's a way to keep us together, even though it makes it a little wonky to read this way. So we're going to begin at chapter seven, verse eight, which is where Hebcal puts us as a preamble to where the Reconstructionist Prayer Book puts us, which is seven fourteen. So we'll start at the preamble at seven eight. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh speaks to you and says, "Produce your marvel." You shall say to Aaron, take your rod and cast it down before Pharaoh. It shall turn into a serpent. So Moses and Aaron came before Pharaoh and did just as the Lord had commanded. Aaron cast down his rod in the presence of Pharaoh and his courtiers, and it turned into a serpent. Then Pharaoh, for his part, summoned the wise men and the sorcerers. And the Egyptian magicians, magicians in turn, did the same with their spells. Each cast down his rod, and they turned into serpents. But Aaron's rod swallowed their rods. Yet Pharaoh's heart stiffened, and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. All right. So Moshe and Aharon have been instructed by God to go to Pharaoh and say, because God says, I have seen the plight of my people. I'm going to bring them out. And here's what y'all need to say to Pharaoh. Uh, And so God knows what's coming. right? God knows what's going to happen. And so uh, God says to Moshe and Aharon, when Pharaoh speaks to you and says, right? so God knows exactly what Pharaoh's uh, going to do, partly because it's predictable what he might do, but also because it's God. Um, notice that we have Moshe and Aharon. It, there's a very careful analysis. If you go to the really you know, intense scholarly level of studying this uh, particular set of texts about the plagues, there's a very careful analysis done of when we see Moshe and when we see Moshe and Aharon. When we see 
Moshe doing the speaking, and then there's an action when we see Aharon doing the action. There's a very careful, um, laid out uh, schema for how many plagues that happens with this way, how many it happens with that way. There's discrepancies where it says this is what's going to happen, but that isn't what happens. Um, So it's a very interesting piece in terms of watching probably two competing traditions or two competing interests being woven into one text. Probably a tension between the Mushite clans. We've talked about this before. The Mushite clans, the ones who who have Moshe as their big guy, and the Aaronid clans the one who would have had Aaron as their guy. So um, so we see sometimes a, an addition of Aharon into a Mushite tradition, mm-hmm. and so we're not sure which comes from where, but it, it, sh- it shows up that there's some tension. I was just reading a great book called Who Wrote the Bible. Mm-hmm. And, and that's it's a fabulous book. Analysis of exactly what you're saying. It's a fabulous book. So I would highly recommend, if you are interested in any of this mm-hmm. kind of stuff, it, at, at that level of the documentary hypothesis of pulling apart the text and understanding why this is a contradiction on the page and starting to understand what is the agenda behind you know, each of these. Remember, we've talked about J, E, P, and D. Mm-hmm. So what is the agenda behind each one of those? It is a, there's not a better book than Who Wrote the Bible? By, is it Friedman? Friedman. And um, it's a great book. I've, I've brought you chunks of it before, but maybe we should soon um, revisit some of it. Actually, keep your eyes open, Sheldon, about um, what you think we might benefit from. Well, like if there's a specific section, it would be great. You can, you can go paragraph by paragraph. They tell you which, which uh, author wrote paragraph by paragraph. Right. Or verse by verse. Right, and, and what, we for, what we often forget is that there's a P, right? P, the priestly source, is inserted into a JE text, right? Our earliest text, and then there's a P on top of that that, you know, yeah. and we forget that. We think this is all written by one period, this chunk of text. Well, the redactor, so called, took these two descriptions and then interwoven them like Because there is, there is a piece here that may show that. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. So the Lord is speaking to Moses and Aaron, and then. Uh, produce your marvel and you shall say to Aaron well you wouldn't say that if you were talking to Moses and Aaron I think it's God who says to Moses right. you will say to Aaron but it doesn't <clears throat> say that it doesn't it says the Lord said to Moses and Aaron right when Pharaoh speaks to oh, right, right, right. Producer, you shall say to Aaron right almost as if God was speaking to Moses, but it said God spoke to Moses and Aaron, so right. this may be a... I mean, so Aaron could be standing there, and God then turns to Moshe yeah. and says, and what you're going to say to him is... But but or there's places the it's texts. just rough. It's very rough. And yeah. and to Sheldon's point, when a redactor puts these texts together, right, so, so whoever writes, whoever wrote this, right, didn't write it all at once. This version that we're holding in our hands comes from a redactor who had different sources in front of him, most likely. Um, <laughs> um, but, right, a bunch of different sources. They choose which of those sources, and they're very similar stories, right? A bunch of stories about Aaron and some plagues, a bunch of stories about Moshe and some plagues, right? So you, you take from both of those, and you, as the redactor, put them together so that both traditions are represented in this book, because you want everybody to buy the book, <laughs> right? Because if if you don't buy the book, then you don't buy into the new national unity story that David and the monarchy is trying to create, which is the purpose of this. 
Yes? Are you with me? So, so both versions have to be here. That's why it's so ragged sometimes. That the idea wasn't to go with one overarching new narrative. People won't buy that. You had to put both narratives on the pitch. Sheldon, you had your hand? We've never discussed this that I remember, but it's sort of interesting. Imagine sitting there as a redactor. Where did they or he or them get the sources? How did they... Were they sitting at a desk and there's a five different narratives? So there, there has been a tradition for a very long time of stories being told and then stories written down, stories that became very important to the identity of the people. And there's folks in the north, there are folks in the south. They have their tradition, they have their tradition. This is one of Friedman's, you know, things. Um, if you're going to have the north, remember we've talked about Israel is a very diverse geographic topographically very diverse there's like 16 trillion climate zones right in israel it's very like california that way so the folks in the north and the folks in the south are not not necessarily united by anything it becomes the vision to unite them right the davidic monarchy unites them how long did they last together as one nation how long 80 to 100 years. That's it. So most of history has not had those peoples be one nation, right? So it's very natural that they wouldn't be. But if you're going to try to unite them, you have to take the stories from the north and the stories from the south and put them together if you're going to sell a new national history book or sacred textbook, I should say. That's one theory: is that it, that David that sages to put this together? Is that how it works? That he he had he any ruler who wants to unite the country has people who are expert in. All right, then what has to what has to be there if we're going to pull these different groups who sometimes hate each other and have been competing forever? If we want to make them one, if we're going to make Iraq. <laughs> which is a ridiculous thing um, how do you make Iraq a country you have to find a way which obviously didn't happen um, successfully you have to find a way to, to, to bring enough of those people's different cultures and their stories and their stuff together to say this is the Iraqi sacred textbook my stories better be in there You know, pick a group pick a subgroup my stories better be there or I'm not buying into that crap we have our own long proud history thank you very much if I'm going to buy this new Iraq is one country and we're all Iraqis now my stuff better be in there and that's exactly what we're dealing with with Torah so when you talked before about the followers of Moses and the followers of Aaron were those people just geographically divided probably ethnically with their own histories and so how did it come that one group would how does any how does any ethnic group have their leaders and another group have theirs? <laughs> right. So, because that's what people do. Yeah. So there are Mushite folks, right, and they trace their lineage and their story to a guy named Musha, and there are an Aranid clan that it traces its history and its founding to a guy named Aharon. So you have an inherent also tension between the priesthood and the prophet. 
how do the Orthodox reconcile all this with their idea of that everything is from God and all so one big package? This is where we get some of the most brilliant midrash. Right? Because when there's a discrepancy, they have to they have to fix it. They have to. So sometimes it's like, well, it's God, we can't know exactly the mind, you know, but but some of our most brilliant and insightful Midrashim come from exactly that need to harmonize. And when you can't harmonize Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, right? Male and female, God created them both, is Genesis 1. Adam being created and then Eve being created from Adam is Genesis 2. What do you do with that? What do we get from that? What's the Midrash we get from that? Needing to harmonize that. Come on. That Eve is born from the... That's Genesis 2. Genesis 1 says, Zachar nekeva bara otam. Male and female, God created them both. What do you do with that? I know, I'm like, really? <laughs> there had to be another woman. If male and female, God created them both in Genesis 1. Genesis 2 says there's only Adam and Eve is created from Adam and it's Torah Misenai, then there had to have been another woman in Genesis 1. Who is it? Yes! Lilith! This is where Lilith comes from. This is where the fabulous Midrash of Lilith, the demoness, right, who gets kicked out of Eden and then is so angry that she comes back to get seed from men's wet dreams at night to have her demon babies. Wow. Is it too good? It's too good, right? So So <laughs> this is some weird guy in a cave dreamt that one up. Some weird guy in a cave dreamt that one up. So clearly it's men sitting around needing to deal with their own their their own you know sexual stuff that goes on right and they have to they have to project that onto somebody that's got to be somebody's fault it can't be them so of course it's it's Lilith's fault right um, but it's that it's that need to harmonize the texts that leads to some very interesting and very creative midrash writing um, all right. And there, there, there's one interesting one, and it's not from harmonizing stuff, but it's a linguistic one that, if you want, I'll share with you when we get there. All right. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> sure. Uh, thanks. Okay, so God says to Moshe and Aaron, when Pharaoh speaks to you and says, produce your marvel, here's what you're going to say. You will say to Aaron, meaning you, Moses, will say to Aaron, take your rod, and it also gets confusing. Whose rod is this? Some people want to say this is the staff of Moshe that Moshe is going to give to Aharon to use. Other people say, no, there's two staffs. Remember when we had the whole put the staff in the ground and one flowers, right? That that's Aharon's staff, his rod. So some, because it's usually a symbol of leadership. So it's possible there are two. One rod is the Aaronid rod and one is the staff of Moshe. Um, it could be the same one. Scholars argue on either side of that argument. I have no strong opinions about this one. Um, take your rod and cast it down before Pharaoh. It shall turn into a serpent. Okay. So Moshe and Aaron came before Pharaoh and did just as God had commanded. Aaron cast down his rod in the presence of Pharaoh and his courtiers and 
It turned into a serpent. Right? Then Pharaoh, for his part, summoned the wise men and sorcerers and the Egyptian magicians in turn did the same with their spells. Each cast down his rod and they turned into serpents. So clearly, this is not a miracle that is impressing the Egyptians because their magicians can do exactly the same thing. By the way, what does this mean? This means Torah believes in magic. We forget that. But Torah tells us in its world, Pharaoh's courtiers did exactly the same thing. Magic is actually efficacious. It, there is such a thing. This does not say God is the only one who could do that. There's no such thing as magic. It says, you don't dabble in magic, you Israelites. You're not supposed to do that. Um, well, certain kinds of magic are off limits. Other kinds are okay. But that's another conversation for another day. So if you want to have, we can look at that in the Talmud sometime. All right. <laughs> what did you say? Okay. 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 Um, yeah, right. Yet, uh, maybe I'll have Nick come in and give a seminar on what, ma- what magic is okay and what, what isn't. Yet Pharaoh's heart stiffened and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. All right. So, we, so God knew this was going to happen, Right. Vayechazek lev paro, right? So, what is the language here, Rita? Verse thirteen. Vayechazek lev paro. What is it? What we we get so used to the English that we forget what the Hebrew says. What did you say, Pam? Strengthened. Strengthened, right? So, Pharaoh's heart was strengthened. Okay, so we're gonna start watching this language about what happens to Pharaoh's heart. Um, all right, what happens next? Verse 14. And the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh is stubborn. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is coming out to the water and station yourself before him at the edge of the Nile, taking with you the rod that turned into a snake. And say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you to say, let my people go that they may worship me in the wilderness. But you have paid no heed until now. Thus says the Lord, Uh, Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. See, I shall strike the water in the Nile with the rod that is in my hand, and it will be turned into blood, and the fish in the Nile will die. The Nile will stink so that the Egyptians will find it impossible to drink the water of the Nile. Okay. Uh, Go go ahead. Actually, read read the blood part. And the Lord uh, said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your rod and hold out your arm over the waters of Egypt its rivers, its canals, its ponds, all bodies of water, that they may turn to blood. There shall be blood throughout the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and stone. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded. He lifted up the rod and struck the water in the Nile in the sight of Pharaoh and his courtiers, and all the water in the Nile was turned into blood, and the fish in the Nile died. The Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile, and there was blood throughout the land of Egypt. But when the Egyptian magicians did the same with their spells, Pharaoh's heart stiffened, and he did not heed them as the Lord had spoken. Pharaoh turned and went into his palace, paying no regard even to this. And all the Egyptians had to dig around about the Nile for drinking water because they could not drink the water of the Nile. Right, so we, we have a problem here in the text. So if somebody, we're going to get there to what the issue is in the text. There's the problem. I'm going to get there. Okay. So we, have, we already have a difficult, we already see some difficulties, right, in the story. So God says to Moshe, 
Tell Aaron, take your rod and hold out your arm over the waters of Egypt, its rivers, its canals, its ponds, all its bodies of water, that they may turn to blood. There shall be blood throughout the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and stone. Moshe and Aaron did as God commanded. He lifted up the rod and struck the water in the Nile. Is that what God said to do? No. Does God seem to care? No. Ah, so sometimes God seems to care. I told you speak to the rock, but you You struck the the rock. So this is proof. This is where some people prove then they could not be striking the rock that was the sin. Mm. Because God doesn't seem to have a problem with that. Mm -hmm. But we'll talk about that when we get there. All right. So. With Aaron doing it. Huh? With Aaron. Aaron's allowed to do something different. The water. And not Moshe. Right, but we're not told who he is. Mm-hmm. Right. But either way, God commanded lift and hitting happened. So so that, anyway, I don't want to belabor it, but I just want us to always pay attention to like, you know, oh, so this it isn't a problem here, but it becomes a problem later. Right? That's interesting. Um, all right, so. Huh? Apparently there was more water. Uh, uh, all right, we're getting, we're getting there. All right, so all of the water in the Nile turned to blood, and the fish in the Nile died. The Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile, and there was blood throughout the land of Egypt. But when the Egyptian magicians did the same with their spells, what did they do? Yeah, with the, the blood that was already bloody. <laughs> and everything's already blood. How do you have water with which... To have the magicians yeah, do the same stuff. It's a problem. Much later. It's a problem. The water cleared up and then the magician. That is one explanation. That is one of the rabbi's interpretations is that it wasn't permanent mm-hmm. and it was enough time after the event mm-hmm. that it had started to clear. Um, but, but then the Egyptians had to dig around to find drinking water. Mm-hmm. But how are they going to dig around and find drinking water if all of the... Mm-hmm all of the water's blood. Some want to say, well, it was the surface water that was blood and the water underneath was okay. So they, they could access water, but they had to dig, dig down for it. Uh, another explanation is it's two different traditions, right? All the water, not all the water. And in the rainy season, when there's flooding, the Nile is So, th- so this is this is... The natural mm-hmm. phenomenon part of the what the people in the it doesn't make any sense to make a story about stuff that people have no experience of generally that that the plague narrative which we need to keep reminding ourselves is not about stuff that doesn't occur right so it's that it occurs when Moses says it should that's what proves that this is God, right? Because the Nile routinely, as Bert points out, um, during their reproductive period, no, so um, where is it? The extreme intensification of a well-known phenomenon that occurs periodically in the Nile Valley. The river is fed by melting snow and summer rains that pour down from the highlands of Ethiopia and carry with them sediment from the tropical red earth that characterizes the region. Following from this explanation, the plague must have resulted from an abnormally heavy rainfall that led to an excessively high rise of the Nile and washed down inordinate amounts of the red sediment. The neutralization of this substance, which normally occurs in the course of the flow of the river, was now retarded so that the entire river took on a bloody hue. 
As a result, flagellates and purple bacteria <laughs> washed down from the high mountain lakes, together with the particles of red earth, disturbed the oxygen balance and killed the fish, which produced a foul stench. So anyone who wants to tell you there is good scientific explanation for the plagues, right, in quotes, um, I gently and respectfully like to say, so? Right? Okay, you, you want to read me this paragraph and say, that's what really happened, Rabbi. Okay, we don't care that this happens. It's a miracle, it's a sign, it's a plague, because it happens when Moshe raises, or Aaron, or whoever raises, or hits, or whatever's happening, when they do that, that's when this happens. That's what makes it God, right? So there's no way to undercut the power of this just because there's a natural phenomenon that is said to happen that matches this. Does that make sense? And for every one of these, there is a perfectly reasonable phenomenological explanation. It has zero to do with our story. It, it just means people were familiar with this. The, the, the Nile going red, oh, we know about that, right? All right, so maybe it's an intensification, obviously, of natural phenomenon. Like, we know there are mudslides. Does that change our horror and shock and, and whatever when we have that and 17 people die? No, no, it doesn't change that, that we know that happens after fire when there's a heavy rain. It, it's an intensification of what we normally see with mudslides in California, as were the fires, right? So that's what we're dealing with here is, yes, an intensification, but also that it happens when God says. Well, if it wasn't that their normal belief sort of at that time that God calls all this natural phenomena. We don't believe that. At least we in this room probably don't believe that today. But back then, they, they really believed that God or the gods were causing all this stuff, like the sun coming up in the morning and the rains coming or not coming. So that's why it has to be the moment Aaron raises his staff, because that's the only way to prove mm-hmm. to the courtiers that it's, it's really Yudhei Vavhei doing it and not Ra, mm-hmm. or some Baal, who's coming into Egypt to take over. Mm-hmm. Although their gods were regional, so they wouldn't have that. But, but you know what I'm saying? Like yeah, it, and that's why Aaron's rod uh, ate the other rods. That's right. So it has to happen that way because they have to, and it's going to take time, as we're going to see. It's going to take time for the, and, and um, we're going to read a piece by Jonathan Sachs called Of Lice and Men. Um, and it's about, <laughs> right, it's about the fact that they don't believe at first that this is anything, first, first of all, other than magic. B, how do you prove it's this new god, Yudhei-Vavhei, and that Yudhei-Vavhei is more powerful than the gods of Egypt or the priests and the magicians you know, working on behalf of Egypt. That, that's why the plagues go in the order that they do. So we're going to look at that. All right, so t- tell me first a little bit, because this plague is not just about a natural phenomenon that happens. Oh, but it's happening when Aaron says, so, oh, it's God. There's more going on here a little bit. So tell me about the Nile in Egypt. The Nile is life. It's where Moses was found because it's the place where his mother put him. They, where the boys were supposed to be drowned. So from an Israelite perspective, the Nile was the place of death for Hebrew babies. It becomes the vehicle for Moshe's miraculous 
survival. What is the role of the Nile in Egypt? The life giver. It is the life giver of Egypt. Egypt depends, remember, not on rain, mm-hmm. but on the Nile overflowing its banks. And an irrigation system built from that overflow is what feeds all of Egypt. If you start messing with the Nile, mm-hmm. right, it is not an accident that, that the first plague is at the direct lifeline of Egypt. The Nile was also a god in Egypt. It is not an accident that yud heh vav the first thing God does, yud heh vav does, is zap the change, you know, in, in really scary ways, the, the echo, what do you call it? The ecosystem. the ecosystem of the Nile that kills all the, what we just read in the scientific explanation, if you have that much sediment, blah, 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 and all this facilis bacterials, then, then it kills everything in the Nile. So the Nile wasn't just an irrigation system. That's where you got fish, right? There, there are things that lived in the Nile. It's where you washed. It's where it's how you stayed clean. It's, so it is not an accident that that is the very first plague is directed at the Nile and yeah. that yod heh is in control of what happens and when it happens to the lifeline of Egypt. Um, I don't think it's an accident either that it's blood. <clears throat> Right? The blood of all those Hebrew babies, right? And the blood that's coming. What blood is coming? What else? The lamb. We have the sacrifice, right? Those who are going to get out have to put blood somewhere, don't they? So we're dealing with blood, right? I, I believe this is a, an alliterative, um, a literary you know like foreshadowing of what's coming think about the Egyptians what's gonna happen to the Egyptians oh yeah they're gonna drown their blood is gonna be in water I mean I think just all over the place this is a very rich you know allusion to what's coming and it's just the beginning blood is the life force yeah and it comes back in kashrut yes of course so it, blood, Nile, that is no accident, right? That these two things are together. Okay, so it's 25. When seven days had passed after the Lord struck the Nile, the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, then I will plague your whole country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs and they shall come up and enter your palace, your bedchamber, and your bed. The houses of your courtiers and your people and your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and your people and on all your courtiers. Right, okay, go ahead. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, hold out your arm with the rod over the rivers, the canals and the ponds, and bring up the frogs on the land of Egypt. Aaron held out his arm over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same with their spells and brought frogs upon the land of Egypt. That's a lot of frogs. That's uh, kind of mean. <laughs> <laughs> if they were, if they were really good magician priests, they would, they would get undo it. Right. Undo it. So, so this is a question. The scholars say, like, wait, what? Yeah, <laughs> like, the plague is a bunch of frogs 
And the magicians go, okay, well, we can do that too. And double the amount of frogs. They double down. <laughs> they double down. All right, so first, first of things, um, so I want to make sure we cover, so I wanted us to, to make sure we're paying attention to the uh, language of what's happening with our buddy Pharaoh, right? And his... Can we also talk about the significance heart. of why frogs? Um, again, probably out of a natural phenomenon. During their reproductive period... (laughs) (laughs) Frogs concentrate in particular areas such as ponds and lakes. As the Nile begins to recede in September slash October, they usually mass on land. In the present circumstances, their habitat had become polluted by the putrefying fish. So the amphibians would have been forced to invade the land much earlier than usual. But the dead fish would have been a source of infection carried by insects so that the frogs died en masse. Um, And there is a frog-headed goddess named Hecht, who was the consort of the god Gnum, who was credited to a fashioned man out of clay. She was associated with fertility and was thought to assist women at childbirth. Hence, the plague may have been taken as retribution for the decree ordering the midwives to kill the newborn males at birth. So again, lots of layers that we read over as English Western readers. Um, I can't find it right now because I got too far ahead of myself. Um, but we see God describes when, when we had that thing where it says Pharaoh's stubborn. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, verse 14. And God said to Moses, Pharaoh is stubborn. He refuses to let the people go. The Hebrew, Vayomer Adonai Moshe, Kaved Lev Paro. So what's the Hebrew? Heavy. 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 Weighty is Pharaoh's heart. So when God's talking about Pharaoh, kaved lev paro, Pharaoh's heart is kaved, heavy. But when we're talking about, you know, Pharaoh's experience, vayichazek lev paro, his heart was strengthened. All right. So, anyway, so lots of our tradition that's dealing with the spiritual implications of this, trying to bring this forward into what does it mean for us, right? That when we react to things, we have choices about whether or not we have a choice about do we strengthen, right? We strengthen our resistance. We strengthen our resolve. I'm going to get them. That's never going to happen again. No one will ever do that to me again, right? The, all those ways we strengthen and harden around our really intense negative reactions. Um, and so the rabbis say, let this be a lesson for us about what happens when we tighten and harden. It, it doesn't tend to go particularly well for for us or for anyone else. Um, don't think, don't think you're not Pharaoh, right? Which is why the language in Hebrew is um, God says here, Bo el paro, right? To Moshe and Aaron, come unto Pharaoh. Even in English, I mean, even in Hebrew, it should say, go, go to Pharaoh. So there's wonderful mm-hmm. midrashim and, and interpretations. Why does it say, why does God say come unto Pharaoh? It's because God is saying to Moshe and Aaron, come unto Pharaoh, Come, in, come unto the Pharaoh in you. 
And Rami Shapiro says, God is saying, Bo El Paro. God is saying, I too am Pharaoh. I am everything that happens. I am reality, capital R. So I am the good, the bad, and the ugly. I am the all of it. Don't think you can separate the yummy stuff, and that's God, and the icky stuff, and that's not God. Come unto Pharaoh. You have to accept the totality, the reality of all of it being one first before you can go be my emissary and free the people. Very intense teachings come from this business. In the last plague, God says that they're supposed to say, let my people go that they may worship me in the wilderness. Correct. This time in the wilderness is not there. Mm -hmm. Is there any particular significance to that? Not that I've heard. Um, it was it was typical, apparently, for peoples who were serving in Egypt to request time to go have their particular rituals. That was normally granted to people. So some scholars want to say, this is here, because some want to say, okay, God is just lying. <laughs> That's not very nice, right? Like, what is God, does God really want them just to go worship in the wilderness for three days? Uh, no, right? God wants their complete redemption from slavery, mm-hmm. liberation. So how could God lie? That's terrible. Uh, um, isn't that a character flaw? Um, but, but other scholars want to say, no, this is it. It was, it was typical for people to get permission. So what God is doing is saying, let's see if, if Pharaoh even gives the Hebrews what most other people get. Just, just give us three days in the desert. Look what happens, right? That Pharaoh is that abusive and oppressive to the Hebrews, that hardened towards them, that that Pharaoh won't even allow the stuff that's normally allowed for other ethnic groups. All right, so I'll show you the Midrash. Yeah? All right, go with me to verse 1 of chapter 8, yeah? Vayomer Adonai Moshe, Emor el Aharon, God says to Moshe, say to Aaron, et yadecha, bimatecha. You know, you're going to take your, your, in this case, arm, right? And your mate, your thingy, your rod. Um, all on the rivers, al ha-ye'orim, ve'al ha-agamim, right? Over all the kinds of waters there are, agamim or lakes. Ve'ha'al, and what's going to happen? Ve'ha'al, and what's going to come up? Rita? Et what? And you're gonna you're gonna lift up. You're gonna make come up what? Svardaim, right? Svardea, right? Is Svardaim frogs? Al haaretz mitzrayim on. I mean, al eretz mitzrayim onto the land of Egypt. What happened? Verse two, in the Hebrew. If you don't read Hebrew, it's fine. We're we're gonna explain it. Bayet aharon et yado. Al So Aaron lifts his hand over Meimei trying the waters of Egypt, and what vataal and what comes up? A frog. The frog. The frog. Singular. Singular. at Eretz Mitzrayim, and it covered the land of Egypt. <laughs> big frog. So, really big frog. So, the, rab- so the rabbinic tradition, this is a Japanese horror film waiting to be made. The frog came up and covered the entire land 
of Egypt. Frogzilla. Frogzilla. <laughs> so come here comes Spardilla and and it covers it. So so the rabbis say there's a t- and I'm gonna give it to you actually. I think I printed it out for you even. Um so what happens? The frog comes up. What is the 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 the, the midrash says? What's the Egyptian response? What did they do? They sent out their magicians. And what did the magicians do? They came and they attacked it. Right? There's a there's a huge frog the size of Manhattan. They came and they attacked it. But when they attacked it and they opened part of it, what happened? Million frogs. Millions of frogs come out. That's how we get plural. plural in verse three, because they attacked it, and when they did that. They magnified the problem by a trezillion. But in Hebrew, the difference is one letter, right? Between Two letters. Well, three letters. Tzfardea ends in a hey, and, oh, it's, no, it doesn't. No. It ends in ayin. So two letters, yin, the yud and the mem, right? That right, makes right, something plural. Letters, right. That makes something plural. Okay. Maybe somebody forgot to put them there. So, this, so <laughs> clearly, <laughs> someone <laughs> forgot to put them there, right? This is clearly a scribal error or, yeah. right? So, or you're saying genus frog. <laughs> to represent all the fro- but Frog it's clearly it's a grammatical mistake right um, but the rabbis can't have a grammatical yeah. mistake if this is Messini if this is God's word from Sinai God doesn't make mistakes God forbid chas mm-hmm. so it has to be mean something else that's not here so another genius way our rabbis deal with it I'm, I'm just thinking is it you know, the further you harden your heart the more mess you make Hundred percent, and the more we respond to yeah. something unpleasant or scary or dangerous, with yeah. Yeah. I'm yeah, gonna beat worse. it to death, I'm I'm gonna beat it down. Right. What happens? Yes, we just get a lot of frogs. So again, what do we see? The magicians did the same with their spells. So this is not something. Again, that is terribly impressive to them that this is Yudhe Vavhe. The only the only Vavhe could do this. They replicated it. So it's clear that there's gonna be an an escalation and intensification of of the kind of sign it is, so that they start to get it that this is not something they can do, and we're gonna see that now. Yeah, and yet they did they have the power to bring on frogs by magic, but they don't have the power to get rid of them. So this mm-hmm. is the other thing that maybe starts so that they could have blood and get rid of it. We don't, but they could bring frogs, but we don't have any indication that they could rid the land yeah, right zero, of the frogs that there. God mm-hmm. had brought. So let's read it for. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, "Plead with the Lord to remove the frogs from me and my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord." And Moses said to Pharaoh, You may have this triumph over me, for what time shall I plead in behalf of you and your courtiers and your people that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses to remain only in the Nile? For tomorrow, he replied. And Moses said, As you say, that you may know that there is none like the Lord our God. The frogs shall retreat from you and your courtiers and your people. They shall remain only in the Nile. Then Moses and Aaron left Pharaoh's presence, and Moses cried out to the Lord in the matter of the frogs which he had inflicted upon Pharaoh. And the Lord did as Moses asked, 
The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and they piled them up in heaps till the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he became stubborn, and he would not heed them as the Lord had spoken. Okay, so Moshe says, you you want me to do, to do what, what was that again? <laughs> say, that, say that a little louder, Pharaoh. You want me to talk to who? <laughs> right? For the first time, Pharaoh acknowledges Yudhei This is the first time we see Pharaoh acknowledging that Yudhei has caused what has happened, and only Yudhei can rid them of it. Right, but this also seems to be an instance of Moses freelancing the negotiating process. I mean, and the nobody, rabbis... Nobody told Moses <laughs> right. to say, oh, and you get to negotiate with, with Pharaoh as to Correct. when his curse is lifted. Good reading. So the rabbis say they quote a verse from Psalms, Vatigzar Amar, Vai... You shall declare a thing and it shall be fulfilled unto you. When the righteous declare something, God will fulfill it and they point here. And they say, as in Exodus chapter 8, where Moshe, without any direction from God, negotiates with Pharaoh and says, here's what's going to be. You pick the day and time and Yudhei will do it. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like so but with great confidence and sure enough, boom, that's what happens. And so the rabbis totally see that and they're they're like, How that's let's put it great. Like God didn't give me permission for that. But they're it's okay. It's okay. Because in Psalms it says Vatik Zaramar Vaikamlach. If you well, you shall declare a thing and it will be fulfilled unto you. Now, which frogs are getting cleared here? Because the last thing that we saw is that the magicians made frogs. So either the magicians can get rid of their own frogs, or God gets rid of them all, but it's clear that they 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 die. It would have been nicer if they disappeared rather than stunk up the whole land. I have a feeling that Yud not interested in making it terribly easy or pleasant, right? Whatever's happening. Um, and so Moshe says, like this is an, I think another way that Moshe proves this is Yud like, I'm not even going to pick the day and time. You pick it. Pick a card, any card, right? You, right? Because that's you. If you pick it, it can't be a trick on my part. You pick the day and time, Pharaoh. It's not magic. If you pick it, I'm not doing anything. So you, you pick it, and that's exactly what happens. But as soon as there was relief, what happens? Verse 11. What happens to Pharaoh's heart? Hardly. Hardens. It he- gets heavy. Er. Right? All right. All right. It's 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Hold out your rod and strike the dust of the earth, and it shall turn to lice throughout the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron held out his arm with the rod and struck the dust of the earth, and vermin came upon man and beast. All the dust of the earth turned to lice throughout the land of Egypt. The magicians did the like with their spells to produce lice, but they could not. The remained upon man and beast, and the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart stiffened, and he would not heed them as the Lord had spoken. 
Okay, so everybody seems to have gotten <laughs> what's happening, right? Right, that y'all got it. God says to Moses, and now see, it's not Moses and Aaron. It looks, for a while now, it's been just Moses. Right. Um, so God says to Moses, say to Aaron, hold out your rod and strike the dust of the earth and it shall turn to lice. Okay, anybody who has ever dealt with any degree of lice starts itching when you start reading this paragraph. Like it, it is the worst, the worst, the worst. Um, <laughs> that's what way one of my days started this week because I was in an ECC classroom <laughs> doing checks because I am a very reluctant expert in lice oh yes um, yes and there's a lot of dust <laughs> and there's a lot, a lot of dust, dust which means a, a lot, lot of lice. lice I mean lice would have been normative in the ancient world of course as it is here today um, but even more so in the ancient world where they didn't wash their hair as much and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff where you know the, um, so um, it helped that there were so many bald people in Egypt <laughs> that that was the, the fashion but um, so it's something that, that they knew from right but again it's, it's an intensification of something they already knew and it's pretty I think universally it's like spiders it's like yeah. bleh, like, bleh, like you know it gives you the heebie-jeebies right so so and it shall turn to lice and they did so Aaron held out his arm and struck the dust of the earth and vermin came upon man and beast. All the dust of the earth turned to lice throughout the land of Egypt. This might keep some of you up tonight. The magicians did the like with their spells to produce lice, but what happened? They could not. And the magicians at that point said to Pharaoh, what? Etzba Elohim he. Say Elohim specifically. Ah, Elohim. Mm-hmm. So we're not quite there yet. Because what is Elohim? God. God. Could be God's slowercase G. It could be Plural. Elohim, you know, big G, right? E. That's the E source. J, E, P, and D. E is the Elohist, the one who calls God Elohim. But it might not be Elohim, capital E. It could be that the, the magicians are saying it's the Hebrews' gods it could be plural. that are it could be more plural. powerful than our gods and or our magic. So we're not quite there yet. But we're getting there. Question, it says finger, mm-hmm. not fingers. Because generally it was the finger of God. Finger of God. It's an expression. Um, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, but but right. So it's it's a what do you call it? An idiomatic expression okay. Okay. of finger of the gods. Finger of the gods. So at the end of that one, it says that um, the heart got stronger, not heavier. Here we go. So part of part of this is watching. Is there a difference between Yechazek and Hechven in terms of who does it? Right? Is it when it's Yechazek, Is it Pharaoh strengthening his heart, and when it's Kavading, it's more God-induced that God hardens, heavifies Pharaoh's heart. Right? So there's some people want to say that there's a there's more than just one thing happening, and it could be about who's digging in or who's causing what. So it's something. It's an interesting thing to hold. And the lice never go away. 
What? The lice don't go away. There isn't the thing that there was where Ferris says, okay, now get rid of the lice. Right. So the other thing we have here, read, read this paragraph six, the, that starts the at 16. The Lord said to Moses, early in the morning, present yourself to Pharaoh as he is coming out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may worship me. For if you do not let my people go, I will let loose swarms of insects against you and your courtiers and your people and your houses. The houses of the Egyptians and the very ground they stand on shall be filled with swarms of insects. But on that day, I will set apart the region of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of insects shall be there, that you may know that I, the Lord, am in the midst of the land. And I will make a distinction between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall come to pass. And the Lord did so. Heavy swarms of insects invaded Pharaoh's palace and the houses of his courtiers. Throughout the country of Egypt, the land was ruined because of the swarms of insects. All right, so people divide who look at this. Remember I said there's a very clear schema of this text. It is not random. It is, not, it is very, very organized. There is a... <laughs> what do you, when we have three of something, what is that called? A triplet of plagues. Three, three, and three, and then the coup de gras. That is how scholars divide this. Because if you look linguistically and at what's going on, there tends to be a triplet of plagues where that have share one characteristic. The next three share a characteristic. The next three share a characteristic characteristic and then boom we're done right the last one stands alone because it is so horrible and so its own thing and God comes down to take care of it in certain ways God's self Um, so we've just finished the first triplet in the first triplet we have Moses talks to Aaron Aaron does the thing that's the first triplet and there is no distinction between the Israelites and the Egyptians. Here's where we get with the fourth, the, the first plague of the second triplet, we get now a distinction between the Egyptians and the Hebrews. And now what's going to afflict the Egyptians does not afflict the Hebrews the same way. Um, so it's, it's one of the ways that they divide this up. But I mean, you could argue against it, obviously, but there, it is interesting to see it in its um, in triplicate. All right, so we're gonna we're gonna look at having just dealt with lice. Question. We're gonna look on the hardening of the heart. My recollection is when we talked about this before, the Lord is the one who hardened the heart of the Pharaoh to make. Uh, just more memorable. Yes, George. I recall we had a very long conversation about that last time we got into this. You were very distressed by the, the fact that, like, God, wait, what? Like, um, so yes, this year I did not choose the hardening aspect to focus on. Generally, I use year three for that. <laughs> um, so it would have been two years ago that we had that conversation. Um, and it's, it, it, is, it is a very dominant conversation in all of the literature, the Jewish literature around these stories. It is a huge piece of the, of the stuff people are dealing with about it. 
you know, the rabbis, philosophers, all of our greatest thinkers, our greatest theologians, right, have had to deal with that. And, and they do it in a variety. Maybe next year I'll bring texts, for the, the texts of our teachers, you know, like Maimonides and, you know, different people, to how, they, how they hold that, how they deal with that. Because it's a very important discussion. Uh, throughout the generations when we confront these texts because it's the obvious it's the obvious problem for people who want God to be all good Rami Shapiro doesn't have a problem with this it happens in the world so of course it's part of God because it happens you can't have something that isn't part of God that happens you can't there is no such thing God is everything so it's less of a problem for those kinds of theologians right the problem comes when you want God to be all powerful all-knowing and all-good. Now you have a problem with this, right? Because you're saying an all-good God causes something in somebody that's going to result in their suffering because that's what God wants. That's a hard, that's a hard theological nut to crack. So there's a lot of time and attention spent on it. Um, all right. So let's look at Jonathan Sachs of Lice and Men. Um, I've, <laughs> I have uh, notated it for you so that we, it takes us less time. Throughout all Egypt, the dust turned into lice. But when the magicians tried to produce lice by their secret arts, they could not. The lice attacked men and animals alike. The magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not listen. Go to your next place where I've indicated to you to be. Sachs is arguing here, satire is essential to understanding at least some of the plagues. The Egyptians worshipped a multiplicity of gods, some of whom represented forces of nature. By their secret arts, the magicians believed that they could control these forces. Magic is the equivalent in an era of myth to technology in an age of science. Right? A civilization that believes it can manipulate the gods believes likewise that it can exercise coercion over human beings. In such a culture, the concept of freedom is unknown. Drop down to my next indication. What is at stake in this confrontation is the difference between myth in which the gods are, gods are mere powers to be tamed, propitiated, or manipulated and biblical monotheism in which ethics, justice, compassion, human dignity constitute the meeting point of God and humankind. That is the key to the first two plagues, both of which refer back to the beginning of Egyptian persecution of the Israelites. The killing of male children at birth, first through the midwives, then by throwing them in the Nile to drown. That is why in the first plague the river waters turned to blood. The significance of the second frogs would have been immediately apparent to the Egyptians. Hecht, the frog goddess, represented the midwife who assisted women in labor. Both plagues are coded messages, meaning if you use the river and midwives, both normally associated with life, to bring about death, those same forces will turn against you. An immensely significant message is taking shape. Reality has an ethical structure. If used for evil ends the powers of nature will turn against humankind so that when someone, what someone does will be done to them in turn. There is justice in history. I'm not 
<laughs> I would argue with him on that last sentence. You know me. Um, I don't want to spend my time doing that. I would rather look at the parts that I feel like are compelling. If you use certain methods that are designed and should be used for life-giving purposes, if you use them for death and destruction, <laughs> it ain't going to stop with who you're aiming it at. If you take an atom and split it, for instance, right, and you want to create energy to keep people warm and keep, you know, houses where you can grow things in all kinds of climates to feed, terrific. If you do that same thing with that same technology to obliterate your enemy, guess what? It's inevitable that you too are going to be suffering from that radiation poisoning. Right? And your food supply and your what, right? It just, okay. So the response of the Egyptians to these first two plagues is to see them within their own frame of reference. Plagues for them are forms of magic, not miracles. To Pharaoh's magicians, Moses and Aaron are like themselves who practice secret arts. So they replicate them. They show that they too can turn water into blood and generate a horde of frogs. The irony here is very close to the surface. So intent are the Egyptian magicians on proving that they can do what Moses and Aaron have done that they entirely failed to realize that far from making matters better for the Egyptians, they are making them worse. More blood, more frogs. This brings us to the third plague, lice. One of the purposes of this plague is to produce an effect which the magicians cannot replicate. They try, they fail. Immediately they conclude this is the finger of God. Okay, drop down to my next indication. I hope you will read this whole thing at home. The primary way in which we encounter God is not through miracles, but through God's word. The revelation, Torah, which is the Jewish people's constitution as a nation under the sovereignty of God. To be sure, God is in the events which seeming to defy nature we call miracles. But God is also in nature itself. Science does not displace God. It reveals in ever more intricate and wondrous ways the design within nature itself. Far from diminishing our religious sense, science, rightly understood, should enlarge it, teaching us to see how great are your works, O God. You have made them all with wisdom. Above all, God is to be found in the voice heard at Sinai, teaching us how to construct a society that will be the opposite of Egypt, in which the few do not enslave the many, nor are strangers mistreated. The best argument against the world of ancient Egypt was divine humor. The occultic priests and magicians who thought they could control the sun and the Nile discovered that they could not even produce a louse. <laughs> Pharaohs like Ramses II demonstrated their godlike status by creating monumental architecture, the great temples, palaces, and pyramids whose immensity seemed to betoken divine grandeur. God mocks them by revealing God's presence in the tiniest of creatures. What the magicians and their successors did not understand is that power over nature is not an end in itself, but solely the means to ethical ends. The lice were God's joke at the expense of the magicians who believed that because they controlled the forces of nature, they were the masters of human destiny. They were wrong. Faith is not merely Faith is not merely belief in the supernatural. Yes, I'm going to challenge that. You see my note. Um, It is the ability to hear the call of the author of being, to be free in such a way as to respect the freedom and dignity of others. So for Sachs, God has a sense of humor. And, right, is after they could replicate the first two, the things they think they have power over, they can't even produce one 
I had forgotten there's a singular, one louse. Not one. You who are, you've built the most powerful civilization in the history to that point of the world. You've built the great pyramids. You can't produce a louse. But I can. Because that is not separate from me. I am in all of it, says yod It is all an expression, right, of me. Um, so you see my notes um, recon right faith is not merely belief in the supernatural for reconstructionists I just want to be clear um, we don't believe in the supernatural as a movement as a theology everyone has their own individual beliefs everybody comes to their own belief everybody is welcome that's what reconstructionism is all about that everybody whatever their belief is is welcome and it's all legitimate as a theology stated by Mordechai Kaplan and his students they rejected supernatural God. They rejected that. That is one of the reasons they left the conservative movement. They did not believe in a supernatural God that punctures human history and changes it. They did not believe Torah was from Sinai in the literal sense that God comes down and talks, right, real words, and then Moshe takes it, and that's what we're dealing with. That's why they left the conservative movement. That's why we have a movement is because this idea of the supernatural was, reject, was rejected. What the reconstruction, early Reconstructionists taught was that they believed in a transnatural God. <clears throat> what does that mean? Ah. So what is supernatural? Above, 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 beyond above natural. The reconstructionist word, what they chose was transnatural, meaning within nature and transcending what we know as the natural world as well. So how do they read this text? I mean, how, do they disagree with this? Uh, uh, it can't happen, it's just not so? Or? Correct, yes. It, right, there isn't, there's no supernatural being that's going to create frogs in Egypt. Right, so I just wanted because I'm bringing this to you. I just want to be clear. This is Sachs talking, right? And I'm perfectly respectful of his theology, um, but I want to be clear for us that 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 is not Reconstructionist tradition, and it's not my theology. Um, what, and I, then what will the Reconstructionist movement do with this? This is our sacred mythology. This is our sacred stories. The answer is it's a myth. Right. Is what you're saying. There are lessons to be learned from it, and it's, it's a, a story. It's a metaphor. It's, it's a, a metaphor. right. It's not the, the same way the rest of Torah is. Not just. It's the story. It's our foundational story. It's our foundational set of narratives. Right. This is our foundational understanding of how we talk about reality, how we talk about God as part of our world, as part of ourselves. I mean, we do that every week, right? I try to close in a way that's like, okay, how? but how does that inform us today? So we talked about hardening the heart. We talked about strengthening the heart and leaning in and digging in. Something's coming, attack it. And right. And our tradition has lots to say about what happens when we harden our hearts. What happens when something comes that we don't like and we start instantly beating it to death. So the movement would say this is just a gigantic mnemonic device. Okay, so I would take I would invite you to take out the word just. Right. <laughs> okay, it is a mnemonic device. It is a critically important, yeah. holy and sacred mnemonic device. Right. Yes. That continues to inform our lives right. every time we sit around the Seder table and tell this story. Uh, right? So it is 
It is our, our most fundamental, most sacred way of talking about our relationship to each other and to the divine and, and what that means for us in any given time. It is very interesting. So I I just listened to a very interesting podcast um, yesterday. I will send you the link, all of you, um, through the Institute for Jewish Spirituality. Rabbi Jonathan Slater, who I've given you his text before, did a podcast for us rabbis who did the program um, on. How do we deal with the shadow self? Because he's talking about spirituality in a time of great difficulty. He goes, I don't think I need to define for you what that is, right? Like so, so his so, and part of his main metaphor was dealing with this idea of so. Does that mean we have to give up all righteous indignation about injustice that we see happening, right? So, isn't there a place also for not such a soft heart? Right for a um, because it can sound like there's two choices: this business that's happening here that we know doesn't work, and or turning the other cheek and being mush, and we know that doesn't work because there's times where resistance and civil disobedience and all those things are absolutely the only right thing to do if you're living into these wonderful values. That usually lead to a softer heart, right? So kind of, and so I think what he was saying is it's not an either or choice, which was very interesting to me because I had the same, we all had the same kind of question. And he said, when we can confront it all as me, I have to deal with the, the shadow me that I see when I see these things coming and can my answer to it be, it's to save me and everything else that is part of me. In, in my righteous disobedience to what's happening, it doesn't mean I have to harden my heart. You know, he, I'm not doing this very well. Um, it's, because I haven't, I don't think I've totally digested it. Like I have to listen to it again. But I think he was saying, it's not a zero sum game. It's not either, your heart is hard and it's terrible and it goes that direction or you're a complete softy that d- doesn't lean in and dig into the the issues du jour and the problems at, at, of the day. But it means can we confront those problems from a place of deep compassion for ourselves and the places we get agitated? Can we hold that with a softer heart and hold that with a great deal of compassion and love and understand our work as coming out of a love for ourselves, the, the broken shadow self that gets triggered by what's going on, um, as well as all of the people who are, that we're worried about. I would add also an understanding of whoever is causing, whoever's coming at you, right? Like there's, Correct. It's not just, I hate you, you're evil. Correct. But, And I'm not going to focus on needing to challenge you. I'm going to focus on, wow, (laughs) what must have happened to you? How much pain must you be in? 
How much of a shadow self are you constantly dealing with to be this angry and this dismissive of other people? Because what Slater is saying is, and he, he quoted the Berdicher, the, the Berdicher Rabbah, the Hasidic tradition that says, every when we look in a mirror, what we see is a reflection of ourselves. If I have schmutz all over my face and I look in a mirror, I see a schmutzedic face. Mm-hmm. If my face is clean, I see a clean face. It is the same when we look at the world or another person, right? If I, if I'm seeing a reflection on some level of myself, so that person who shall remain nameless, right? Who we might get triggered by, right? The first step is to say, I do that too, right? I don't have the kind of power some other people have, right? To use that for ill, but I do that too. Wow, you must be, and that hap- I do that, dismiss people, blame people, whatever, when I'm dealing with confronting my shadow. Wow, how intense must your shadow self be? <clears throat> how much pain must you be in that you need constantly to put that much energy into right deflecting? So that my heart can stay soft while I work against the policies or the issues or the things that are happening to heal and correct and stand for what should be happening. Does that make sense? And I think that is a very, very important teaching for our time because as much as we talk about hearing the other, as much as we talk and I've preached about how do we listen to the other, it is so hard to get there if we don't first do exactly what he's talking about. And he says this is not easy. He said, I'm not saying it like, okay, well, here's the solution and okay, just go do that and we're done. He said, it's constant. We're doing it all the time. Every day, like this, this morning, before I got here, you know, the phone cord got caught in my drawer and I just like, snatched it out, right? And then it snapped back and hit me in the face. And it's like, we're, we're dealing with it. Why did I need to grab it at like what? I was rushing, I was concerned, I was anxious, did I prepare it? Like, right? And so it's every moment we, we have the opportunity to either breathe into a softer heart and some compassion around, right? Why am I so agitated, <laughs> right? What's going on, Amy? And just holding that with some real compassion. You're worried you didn't prepare enough for them? Okay, take a breath. It's okay. You'll go in and do what you do. They are the ones creating the experience anyway. Okay, right? And so now take that to the nth degree of when we're confronted with real injustice and real evil and real whatever. It, it's about how do we not let that change us into Pharaoh? Because that's what we become if we get all chazek and kaved at the heart place. Then we we become exactly what we are saying we're fighting against. So may this Shabbat be one in which we, with deep compassion and great space and lots of patience, hold everything that comes back this week into our world to reflect our own inner reality. May we hold that with a lot of respect uh, that we might choose to soften the hearts and contribute to a world more shalem, more whole. Therefore, one step closer to shalom, to peace. Shabbat shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.